0: All right, everybody. It is time to talk a little bit about the latest Titans Dinner. It happened, I believe, last night in New York City. Uh, the meetup of some big-time investors talking their bigger, or biggest, I should say, and best ideas. Uh, the host of the dinner, Steve Kroll, back with us, managing director at Monus Crespi Hart & Company in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here. So it's interesting. You said to Jason and I while we were listening to uh, uh, Eric's uh, panel out there at uh, the Aspen uh, Ideas Festival, you said these guys last night at the dinner talked a lot about politics.
2: Well, they did. And first of all, I wish we were out in Aspen. <laughs> uh, <they> all. <laughs> unlike the 90-degree temperature here in New York. But, uh, yeah, we uh, typically once a month we get 20 of the uh, biggest financiers in the world. Um, and quickly it turned into rather than talking ideas, it was talking about the politics going on this weekend. And, and let me just give you the general theme um, without – criticizing anybody I think uh, the pushback on the president was that he likes to have show and and make some quote deals uh, but so far we haven't really had any meaningful deals done starting with North Korea uh, Mexico nothing really has been accomplished You know, he goes up to Canada and gets them upset. And and, then, obviously, the EU and Japan recently, he gets them upset. But uh, with China, they will probably have a handshake and they will talk about some symbolic things. But uh, this is not going to get done uh, this weekend. And I think I don't know if the market's going to, except for a one-day or two-day pullback, really uh, bother. I think the main thing is that uh, the economy is slowing down. The Fed is lowering rates. They will do it in July and maybe one more time later in the year. And as you just said, the ten years at two percent. Now two percent is still higher than all the other countries that we basically deal with right. on, a, on a financial system. So you know, relative, when, I, right? when I see the Spain ten year, you know, almost a, doll, a a percent lower than ours, it's a little bit reassuring that we do have a cushion down there. Um, the uh, The thing that did worry them is that uh, Iran is pushing buttons and nothing is really going to come out of there except for some more agitation. And that's helping crude to go up. And then for the first time, we had a drop in the oil uh, inventory build and a very big drop. So we think that um, that in itself will keep crude higher. Then on the other side, not to criticize the president because I never want to do that, because I think in some ways he's doing a great job than the Democrats last night put on a folly. And I'm a Republican, but I'm not going to take sides, but you have 10 people that are basically trying to put the capitalist system out of business. And so everybody in the office and at the meeting last night came away afterwards saying that uh, um, if, if Trump maintained his coolness over the next couple of months, uh, he could walk away with the uh, election easily because there's no one so far in the Democratic Party that wants to do anything except bankrupt the world. And did it surprise you because we are in a market that, you know, takes
1: some thought right now that so much of the conversation was about politics or is this just the world we're living in, Steve?
2: Well, I think it's also timing. Yeah, we do have uh, we've had the president work very hard on a number of issues uh, with different countries almost every other week. So that is in the in the thing. And then you have the, the you know the G twenty. Uh, and then you have Iran now, you know, kicking up the water in the Strait of Hormuz. So I think it is timing uh, that's really focusing on it and we're pretty well through some of the some of the earnings. And the market uh, the last couple of days has drifted lower, but yeah. nothing dramatic. And uh, so I think it's mainly the uh, the, the issues that we have. It, we, we will get back to earnings and and fund flows. But
0: any conversation about this, you know, I understand what you're saying about the president kind of dealing with some issues, but he's also throwing a lot of issues out there and not getting any kind of resolution. We've had a lot of conversations with CEOs of major companies who are basically saying, you know, we have to rethink supply chains. We are maybe putting off making business decisions because there is so much you know, kind of instability and no grand policy-making, decision-making being done. It's not, there's no resolution of it. And that certainly will play through in terms of top and bottom
2: lines. 100%. We are, all the companies that we follow are generally saying, what you just said, is they are putting off a decision. They're not Mm -hmm. canceling a a new plant, but they don't know where to put the new plant. And all the tax rates are changing. And and so it's it's a very difficult, and in some ways he's causing the slowdown by By doing all the throwing out all these uh ping pong balls to to, to have people pick up on and it 's right. just not it 's not a very good longer term uh, it 's almost like he wants to do a deal a week and that doesn 't work in in the long term thinking for the country but then on the other hand, you get the the people last night, and they have, you know, talking about free college education, free everything. You're running a, I don't know, what is the number, $40 trillion real budget deficit, including Social Security and defense. So no one seems to be looking at the real, you know, solid figures.
0: But I wonder about, like, the folks that you gather, Steve, for the Titans dinners. And I think about when Jason and I were at Milken, and we were kind of blown away by how I I – hosted a big real estate panel um, Tom Barrick and some others were on it uh, people who you know are dealing with multi-million multi-million dollar projects and how the conversation and they kind of helped steer it that way got to the inequalities when it comes to housing and the, the inability for certain people in cities whether it's Seattle whether it's New York whether it's San Francisco Silicon Valley and some other hot spots around the world where the people can't afford to live there anymore and I do wonder about the conversations that you guys have where you're overseeing millions and billions of dollars, whether there is some talk about the disparities that we have in this world. And at some point, those tensions create problems for a country.
2: There's no doubt about that we are uh, slowly dividing the haves and the have-nots, and that's not going to be good longer term. But there is a big difference about giving away something for free or giving away something to people that are putting in an effort so letting, let's say, the immigrants automatically vote. I have a big problem, and I think most people at the dinner last night have a big problem that. Any other country we go to, you have to... Get in and get a license and pay taxes, and then you can vote. Well, I so, actually think
0: everybody should have a civic lesson. <laughs> well, that's exa- I mean,
2: that's exactly it. And giving away Medicare. Americans, too. A Medicare, a, a <laughs> Medicare for all uh, and paying for college education. That, that, that just does not work in the numbers. But there is no doubt there are the haves and the have-nots, and we have to close that. We have to close that, though, in a very intelligent and financial what's,
0: way. What's the intelligent and financial way to do that?
2: Well, I think people shouldn't get anything basically for free unless they're sick. Uh, that other people have to work and they have to pay taxes and they can't be uh, working in a uh, situation where they're not paying taxes. It's just uh, no one minds somebody getting help if they need help and they're, what they're putting in what we put in and what you put in. But if your tax rate goes to 70 or 80 percent so the person downstairs on the street doesn't have to pay any taxes and gets everything for free. That's not a good system. That's how we have, uh, you know, uh, Venezuela. And so as you talk to the titans around
1: the table, how soon since we are getting closer and closer to the 2020 election, did they start essentially investing into this theme? If we do get a a better sense that there is a viable Democratic candidate and what that nominee is going to stand for. How soon do they get defensive, and, and how do they? Did that
2: come well, up Well, that, that didn't really come up. After we just went through the basic overview there of the haves and the have-nots, then we went back to um, stock picking and what have you. All and right. Well, then people, tell us about the stocks. Well, the, uh, <laughs> you know, this was an eclectic night. With, uh, a lot of people uh, still think Oxy and a few more takeovers in the uh, oil business are going to happen, mm-hmm. principally because if something happens in the straight over moves and ruins uh, – uh, some of the situation there in the shipping, uh, the closer to the United States, uh, it will be better. And, and our production is moving up dramatically. Housing, uh, low interest rates should be helping it more. Uh, Lenar and a couple other names came up. Yeah. Uh, they think those things should work. Uh, Airlines, they're surprised they have not done well. I I noticed today Southwest has canceled 15,000 flights. So you would think the airline fares should be going up a little bit more than they are. Boeing, obviously, it looks like the max is going to be delayed more. So the airlines should be be doing better. Uh, One thing that is very apparent is that the investor out there is searching for a lot of high-yield vehicles, whether it's stocks, bonds, munis, or what have you, because rates are at almost under 2%. And it looks like they're going to probably stay there all year, all year round. But uh, they're thinking in the back of their minds about the longer term, but we still invest shorter term.
0: I'm looking for some themes here. and I'm like going through some of the different stocks here. Right? It's kind of all over the map. There was.
2: There was no yeah. real themes. It was companies that yeah. came through with good numbers. And yeah. uh, uh, it was very eclectic. Uh, not a lot know, of technology. No, I mean, not I a lot I, of see tech. t- I see Twitter and couple I see Facebook. A couple of names that were down. And uh, Twitter was mentioned, but the stock was down today by yeah. some. I can't remember what happened. But uh, if I had to say a theme, it would be Oxy, MGM, and then a couple of down and outers. I won't mention who meant, who did it, but Teva uh and and uh, M, uh Malicrot, they thought it had overdone on the downside because the opioid uh, thing is taking away uh. on the fines but it's down so much they think it's it's very attractive but uh and then um then we got into a thing um more this morning about uh the long onlys are still outperforming the hedge funds dramatically this yeah. year and the that's it. That's a problem for the industry because yeah. the hedge funds charge double fees. Right. And the long onlys are cutting the fees, and then the ETFs are undercutting them. So it's a it's a interesting yeah. uh, oxymoron going on in the money management business. But uh, uh, when you have the, the you know the well the S and P is up 17 percent, right? and I have probably thirty <laughs> percent of my clients above that number. Yeah. Uh, and they're long only, but I'd Nasdaq's say probably, up twenty percent this yeah, year. Yeah yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean. So what are they most worried about? About a minute left.
2: Uh, I would say just something going into a a severe slowdown. Yeah. If all these programs that he's talking about um, don't get done or or somehow fumble the ball because like the trade agreements and well you're you're talking also let's talk about the good countries you know Canada Mexico uh, I'll leave China out for a second Um, if and and then something blows with uh, Japan and the EU. These are four stable countries, but there's some adversarial talk going on. I mean, to tell Japan you have to have your own military now. I mean, this is something it hasn't been said since, you know, 45. Um, This this can cause issues, and this is not what you want to see. And that's what I think people are worried about longer term. And that will then lead to earnings reductions. And right now, next year, they're talking slight increase, maybe a slight decrease. That could get worse. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. All right. Cool discussion. Sounds like Politics, a lively too. group last night. Steve Kroll, Managing Director at Monos Crespi Hart and Company. Here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Talking Titans. This
3: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg
1: Radio.
0: And you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly on this Thursday. So as you know, as you just heard from our Eric Shasker who's talking to uh, – Uh, David Rubenstein and uh, Paul Singer at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Well, there are many interesting guests there, and that includes the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco President Mary Daly. We caught up with her as well, and she sat down for a conversation, talked about a lot of things, including the main headwinds for the economy.
4: The main
3: factor, in my judgment, from looking at all the evidence and talking to my contacts is uncertainty is the headwind not the actual trade situation. Now that could change if the trade situation that's uh, resolved is, becomes worse, but right now it's really the uncertainty that is holding back the economy.
1: So, if you're an economics watcher, and you thought I really would love to hear from as many Fed speakers as humanly possible, uh, the last week has been very, very good for you because uh, we've had a lot of them. As Kathleen I say, it was Hayes, Fed Palooza. Kathleen Hayes, global economics and policy editor for Bloomberg, and Carl Rick Adana, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. They're both here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So you just heard what uh, Mary Daly said. KH, you've been making the rounds. Is it jiving? What, what's going on? How synthesize this for us? Well,
3: you know, it's interesting because uh, when Mary was speaking at the Forecasters Club yesterday in New York, and she, uh, the interviewer was Peter Hooper from Deutsche Bank, and then the audience got to ask some questions, and the reporters got to ask questions. How, but what, when she's talking about about the main headwind being uncertainty, and Carl, you should jump on this too as our Ph.D. economist, Um she said, "It's so hard to model uncertainty. That uncertainty so much can slow down investment, That's can why it's reach uncertainty, out and eventually, right? Well, but but Sorry. the point is, how do you? I but how do condition. you calculate that? <laughs> how do you come up with a number for it? You can have a model to forecast. And look at all the way these guys, our Bloomberg Economics team, you know, scours the numbers, punches the numbers, comes up, you know, and says what their forecast is. But how do you quantify how much that is taking out of well, the economy? And I think it's an interesting way to think about why the." Fed saying, you know, it makes us much harder to know just how to steer this boat.
0: But I do love that she said, I don't read January as a policy pivot. It was a policy pivot, but their point is, right, they are data dependent. So, right, the markets were coming undone. Everybody was getting freaking out. I mean, you're shaking your head. I mean, it was a policy pivot.
5: I mean, it was uh, if not a pivot, Charlie Brown kicking the football and uh, Lucy pulling it out uh, from in front of him. Uh, It was a very strong policy pivot. The Fed went from signaling uh, considerable additional balance sheet reduction as well as several more rate increases to going on to an extended pause, which looked like it would be followed by additional hikes, uh, to now signaling rate cuts. Uh, that's a pivot, if there ever was one. Uh, and uh, so to, you know, she was trying to push back against this notion. Uh, Mike McKee was the interviewer uh, in that case, uh, and he was asking her about uh, getting bullied by the markets. And mm-hmm. so she was uh, pushing back against the notion of the Powell put and whatnot. Right. Uh, But uh, absolutely market conditions, which contribute to uncertainty, uh, certainly led the uh, Fed to move in a different uh, direction. Uh, What's interesting also in her comments, uh, she's really walking back this idea uh, that July is a guaranteed rate cut. Uh, She said, uh, I'm not sure what the magnitude of the move would be. If we actually even did do it, so she mm. is data driven. Uh, she's not made up her mind that the Fed needs to act in July, uh, and I think the Fed is trying to be a little bit stingy here. They're being compliant with markets, uh, but not uh, uh, enabling the greediness of uh, of the you know those who are looking for much more substantial moves from the Fed.
0: And I think that's a good point. Like I mean. Either we're stupid or we understand that Fed is data-dependent, right? Like, they have said this time and time again, so we have to understand that. They've as always condi- been data-dependent. Correct. We, so, we know that. Right. So as conditions change, market
3: conditions, economic conditions, they're going to alter policy. Sure. Isn't that what we want a Fed to do? Exactly. And in fact, it's, one of the things that was interesting for Mary yesterday was talking about the yield curve. And one of the things interesting, I thought she said, you know, we can see correlation with the yield curve. It's much harder to figure out, out causation. And there's so many things hitting the long end of the Treasury market. Yes, I'm watching that carefully, she said. But you have to be careful just how you interpret it. I mean, actually, Mary Daly is very, very thoughtful and clearly, you know, a number one Ph.D. economist just like Carl Riccadonna. I mean, now she knows her stuff. And I do think she's being very cautious. I also wonder the extent to which being one of the newer FOMC members, even though she's been director of research for many years and she was at the San Francisco Fed longer than she was director of research, nevertheless when you sit in that seat, when you make policy and when people start asking you as the president of the San Francisco Fed and by the way before John Williams that person was Janet Yellen right, that's a big seat to fill. If you don't, exactly, if you don't speak very carefully and at the same time sort of back up where the chairman is now and maybe where the just barely consensus position is on the FOMC which I see as yes, we know We may maybe even probably have to cut, but we're not going to commit yet. And particularly not until you see what happens in Osaka, even though I don't think they'll maybe admit that that how how big of a swing factor that could be. But she
0: did say trade uncertainty is headwind holding back the economy. So there you have it. Right.
1: Well, and wouldn't this all be solved, Carl roy if Mario Draghi just came and ran the Fed? I mean, (laughs) this is is an easy solution. Done.
5: Fixed. Now, I'm a big Mary Daly fan, but I am going to pick on her for one thing she said. Uh, Which we hear time and time again from Fed officials uh, when they're asked about the strong dollar uh, and then the Fed officials go into boilerplate mode and uh, as if, you know, just hypnotized into party line, they say the dollar is the Treasury's domain and, Mm -hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah in a freely floating exchange rate. Uh, monetary policy has a very meaningful impact on the currency. It's true in the Eurozone. It's true here in the U.S. Uh, it was a big factor uh, that helped the U.S. come out of the financial crisis. The dollar weakened considerably yeah, right. in trade-weighted terms. In fact, it fell to a three-decade low. Uh, and one of the major engines of the economy in those early years of this cycle, which, happy birthday now, is uh, starting next week, the yeah. longest expansion,
0: expansion on record, right? At least
5: eighteen fifty four.
0: Yeah. I remember that back then. Exactly.
5: Exactly. Tom
0: Keene does. That was a previous life.
5: (laughs) (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, the dollar is very relevant here and we're seeing a very strong trade weighted dollar. That is creating deflationary pressures and it's slowing the economy as well. So the Fed needs to in some way I'm not saying the Fed needs to intervene in the currency market, but they need to at least be honest, intellectually honest, that through less Uh, restrictive policy they will encourage a weakening in the currency which will be very helpful to economic conditions right. and also inflation.
0: And it's not just the U.S. Central Bank, right? Other banks around well, the world are looking it's, at their currency. But I mean,
3: I think
5: th- this th- they touch t- back against this notion of beggar thy neighbor Well, But also I think policy. that this is definitely in the discussion
0: relevant.
3: right now and people and policymakers in the White House is admitting that you have to differentiate bet- uh, right. between an intentional depreciation of your currency to boost your exports versus monetary policy moves to stimulate your economy. But it's often hard to tell wh- which it is and that's why it gets so contentious. I wish we had another
1: nine minutes with you fired two. Fired up. Who, who? <laughs> These guys I and know. You. I know. All well. right, <laughs> good stuff. Kathleen Hayes, global <laughs> <laughs> economics and policy editor for Bloomberg. Cole Riccadonna, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. The dream team. trouble. double trouble.
0: Double trouble. <laughs> perfect song to get into this next segment, a riveting story about someone who seems to have simultaneously conned two of the most dangerous organizations in the world. Uh, We'll get into that in just a moment because those two organizations, we're talking about Colombian drug cartels and the U.S. government. That story reported by Bloomberg News finance reporter Zeke Fox. He is at our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York, along with Business Week editor Jill Weber. And Zeke, let's start with you. Fascinating story. This is among our favorites, uh, although there's so many good ones uh, in the heist issue in the magazine this week, but tell us a little bit about...
1: Yeah, don't tell anyone else that we was our
0: <laughs> Yeah, we might get in trouble. Tell us a little bit about Baruch Vega.
6: So by all appearances, he was one of the most successful fashion photographers in Miami. He had a penthouse on Miami Beach, his own jet, regular out at the hottest restaurants in the neighborhood, always surrounded by beautiful women, but he had more than one And we're, and one we're talking
5: secret. like 90s here, right? Yes,
6: it's the late 90s, and yeah. he's... Uh, unbeknownst to his friends and family, he, for a long time, has been working as sort of a freelance secret agent for different agencies of the U.S. government. And, unbeknownst to those agencies, he's running a massive swindle on Colombian drug lords. So, the, so- the other way that
5: you could describe this story is it's the season
1: of Narcos that the U.S. government doesn't want you to know about. Right. I mean, it's amazing, too, like, all the people that he essentially fooled along the way, and you sort of go through the story, and you think, is he a, an agent, a double agent, a triple agent, something even bigger? I, I have to ask Zeke, how did you get him to talk to you?
6: You know, he was very, he's very proud of what he did yeah. undercover, and he's actually, he was quite eager to tell his story. And... He The way he describes it is a little different than how I tell it in, in print. He sees himself as just a hero, right. like someone who ended the drug wars and brought peace to Colombia because he convinced so many drug traffickers to cooperate with the U.S. government. Can you describe how he was able to do that? So he, over the years, had made a lot of connections in Colombia. He would uh, he was known to these cartel guys as someone who, you know, had some power in the U.S. and someone who was a player. Always, he appeared to be very legit, rich guy. And a law had just passed in Colombia that allowed drug traffickers to be extradited to the U.S. So all these guys are kind of worried, could the Justice Department be building a big case against me? He'd go to them and say... Go to you're the drug right. lords. He'd go to the drug lords, fly down there. He'd meet with them, and he'd say... you gotta, you got to meet them on their turf. You fly in on a private jet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, he's flying to Colombia. He's going out to their ranch, or he's meeting them in Colombian prison, and he's saying, yeah, you're right to be worried. The U.S. is going to get you. You're going to be rotting in American prison unless you pay me $10 million, $20 million, $50 million, because I've got... Some and those are juice. real numbers. Yeah. I'm going to spread that around, and I'm going to take care of this problem for you. And
1: for those guys, it's a bargain at twice the price, right? And mm-hmm. and he was able to prove that it, it seemed to work. You know, He had guys knocking on his door to make this
6: deal, right? Yes, because the first few guys, he'd tell them, pay me, and then you're going to go meet with the DEA. You're going to sign a standard cooperation agreement. But don't worry. You won't really need to rat out anyone. You can just maybe put some cocaine on a boat. Send it somewhere. Have the DEA seize it. You're not going to have to give real information. So his first few customers, if you want to call him that, were did this, and then they're set free and they're traveling freely. And all their drug trafficker friends can see these guys can go to Miami. They can party. They they pay, and their biggest clients are bragging to all their friends about how well it worked. They're like, yeah, just pay the guy, and like anything goes.
0: So more people come to him. But ultimately... It's like a Ponzi scheme. It's like, it's pretty nutty. And then so ultimately, though, then some people have to come. And then when they meet, they, they pay the money. They meet with the U.S. drug agents. But then they have to start ratting out people.
6: Eventually, I mean, these things are just not as cut and dry as you'd imagine. You know, they're, they're meeting with the drug agents. They're negotiating the cooperation agreement. Vegas told them... Don't mention the bribes to anyone. Like these guys aren't in on it. But don't worry. Like everything's taken care of. Eventually, things don't work out between the drug agents. Real the federal agents realize the drug it- traffickers aren't really cooperating, and, and this things is like start to. Episode eight, you know, in the season. I think, yeah, yeah. Things just once things fall apart, and the drug traffickers realize they've been tricked. It's too late. What are you going to do? Go say. Oh, I've been meeting with the DEA, giving them information, and like, but I'm really mad because some guy, I paid a guy a bribe. I mean, it's something you just have to keep to yourself.
0: There's so many incredible nuggets. I love how you describe him as kind of a narco Forrest Gump because of the people he says he crossed paths with. And when you read this story in its entirety, you will be blown away by the people that this guy seems to have had relationships with. The point is, though, ultimately, there's a sting and he gets arrested. Just got about 20 seconds left here. So is he in jail? No.
6: He's arrested, but he's, he's set free. He's now semi-retired, living in Maui. He claims he spent all the money. There's none left, and he didn't hide it all, even though he could have if he wanted to. All I
0: can say <laughs> is this is a fascinating read. I cannot wait till it's out on Netflix snitches. or Amazon.
1: King of the Snitches. A centerpiece of the heist issue. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, and Zeke Fox, finance reporter. Great, great story. Thank you both. I'm my car.
6: This is The Drive to the Close. That punk to music will drive us to the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close. Back with us is Cole Smead, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. Roughly $2.2 billion in assets under management based in Seattle, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. On this Thursday, the Smead Value Fund, by the way, beating most of its peers over the past five years, returning on average about 9% annually so nice to have you here Thank you. how hard is it being a value guy right now
4: Uh, well uh, it's pretty lonely in certain (laughs) ways and I say that because for example you have to ride a ride that's not so comfortable Um, there was a great chart put out a couple weeks by various shops but showing uh, volatility in the cheapest stocks is the highest in the market or beta it's the highest beta part of the market the most expensive is the lowest volatility or lowest beta so um, you know a couple weeks ago I wrote a piece just saying hey if volatility picks up in the market for value stock pickers, that's just par for the course. Or as I said, business as usual in the most expensive stocks, that would actually be bothersome to see volatility pick up. So it's, it's kind of what have you prepared yourself for and what, what are you interested in as a picker? And and that's kind of, there's a big, like you said, there's a big spread between what the market has and what we're doing.
1: And so what are you picking up these days? I mean, what are some names that you feel like are representative of this type of market for a value
4: guy? Yeah, well, um, book values underperform massively in this bull market. If you look at price to book, it's the one metric that's been really left in the dust. So um, using, as we are talking during the break, uh, use what Howard Hughes has got going on this morning. We don't own the stock, but it's a deep value, it's a land play. That's about as far from the future as we can talk about, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, now the question is, is it gonna be good to know the future or is it better to know the price? and be rational, okay? Because people get to certain points in the market and they want to think and dream and hope and love just like at the bottom of the bull market, they didn't want to think and dream and hope and love, okay? So um, use what's going on with Buffett at Occidental Petroleum right now as an example. He's in the back of bankruptcy line and people think what they're doing looks pretty stupid. Icons involved kind of stirring up dust at the same time. It's book value assets that have a great cash flow stream in the future.
0: Let's talk about some of the companies because you keep it to kind of a small group, yeah. right? Twenty-five to thirty. You hold them for usually a long time. I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah. I mean, Disney's on that list. NVR, home builders, up on mm-hmm. that list. Um, let's let's walk through Disney right now. You've got a, a forward pre-E of almost 21. Stocks had a nice run. Yeah. You've got a little bit of a dividend to play with. So what's you're in it for the
4: long haul here? Yeah. No, until
0: Bob Iger steps down. Yeah. I mean,
4: <laughs> we've owned Disney for a long time. It's a wonderful business. Every child born in the next 20 years as their customer. It's a very simple business. But you know what should be kind of bothering Disney investors in the interim? um, everyone's pretty confident that they're going to be able to deal with the Netflix issue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Isn't it funny they went from two years ago thinking ESPN was the end of the world to now, oh man, these are going to be the only media company that's going to deal with the Netflix issue. So marginally we've been taking some capital away from Disney. Why? Because Discovery Communications has chip and Joanna gains. It's cheaper than all get out and content is still king. Okay, they, own, they own women 25 to 50 years old, and that is a terribly profitable customer. Okay? It doesn't mean I, as a guy, don't enjoy their content. It's just that I don't know how to actually do my house better than my wife Right, as well, an example.
1: Chip and Joanna oh, wow. Gaines. That was
4: so traditional. Of it was, it's, here's the worst part. <laughs> it's so traditional that millennials are going to do it, and that's the worst part about it. Because we all want to think that we've morphed into different humans. Disney
0: has a lot of content, though. How does that play into it? I mean, well, isn't that the whole idea between con- Correct. Right,
4: content's king. Yeah. And that's what Disney does great is really wholesome family entertainment. The toughest part of their, their game is trying to do children. I mean, let's go through the companies that do child, children's entertainment. Well, it's really them and maybe DreamWorks and Peppa the Pig. I mean, it's randoms outside of that. So net, the, the Netflix thing can't do content. That's where they're struggling. They're a good distribution platform. Hmm. If I'm Comcast, I love Netflix because they just shove data down my pipes at right. the same time. Right. Uh, Comcast does content really well with NBC Universal, so content will always be king. To your point, Carol, the question is who can be doing the same level of content spend in five years if the capital markets aren't so adoring?
0: So you've been taking a little bit off the table of Disney. Have you been adding to Comcast because that's also in your portfolio?
4: Uh, we've just been sitting on our Comcast stake. Yeah. Um, comparatively, you know, newer names for us this year. Uh, we've been buying into Booking. Okay, what do millennials do? They travel. Okay. Um, it's the worst thing they can do for the environment. Looking
0: holdings. Yeah, we've talked to the CEO. Yeah, uh,
4: Glenn, uh, Glenn Fogel. Yeah. Who, who, yeah. And they're, they're a great business. They buy back stock like fiends. It's just a capital light business. Now, that being said, um, we took a stake in them, and we're being very patient because there's been a lot of fang drafters that have owned that stock. Okay, right. The people that have succeeded in this market have benefited greatly from that, but— they have a fantastic business, and they have a bright future. It's, it's not dissimilar. Um, the question is, you know, are we going to get better opportunities to see better prices?
1: Talk to us a little bit about Target. We're actually uh, interviewing an individual later uh, who is bringing – a toy a vintage toy mm-hmm. uh back into the market via target i mean target is a very savvy merchandiser mm-hmm. and you sort of look at it and say retail apocalypse well yeah i mean they've done great
4: okay so let's let's go right to the millennial couple okay uh i don't shop personally at target but i'll pick up there okay my wife is doing the shopping at target I love the millennial memes, they're fantastic, okay? Uh, you know, I went to go get uh, my kid's soap and here's what I came out with and it's a giant cart full of Target crap, right. okay? So you're right, Target does a really good job of serving that community. Um, that being said, they're doing a really good job of the, the, the click and collect. That's really working because their on-site locations are becoming a big asset. Others aren't dealing with that as well, to your point. So Target's doing a great job in that. Um, Very high return on equity business. It was a business that was supposed to be killed. It was thrown into the hodgepodge of the, the troubled retailers. And the truth is there's just not as much trouble as people thought. Where have you been adding? What position have you been adding to? Most recently? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Occidental has been our most recent buy, as an example. Mm. Okay, So, um, you know, our buys this year has been Occidental. We bought some Schlumberger, so it's another thing in that space. Uh, Booking. Um, We bought some Cummins earlier this year. So we've been going at things that um, have been very contentious, out of favor. Um, That being said, you know, if someone said, what's the most attractive buy we have? Um, I'd probably be fighting for you know, Discovery stock just as much as anything. And that's one of our largest holdings. It's very odd yeah, to have such is. a large holding yeah. and be so ridiculously cheap. We got John Malone on board, David Zaslav a genius. People are talking about them getting bought out possibly by another party. Um, they, their content is just amazing. It's kind of untouchable. Who but Tech will is very unlikely to say, okay, we can't do this. We have to finally admit that we have to buy an incumbent in the business. Um, so, therefore, I, we, I don't think it's very likely tech will come in to buy these guys. It'd probably be a traditional player. You have Man. a lot of
0: banks, too. Wells Fargo. We JP do. Morgan, some insurance. It's C-card day. What, is it you like them? Are you adding to these guys, or you've been paring back? just got about 30 seconds.
4: Yeah, it's a great question. So, the, the scarcest thing in this era of investing has been confidence in the U.S. economy. Hmm. People got more interested in the stock market in the last couple of years, but we were going to go into the abyss, and then we didn't, and there was double dip, and we didn't, and then it's never going to get to 3% growth, and we did, and now we can never sustain that. It's been the most hated part of this whole era. Yeah. These banks in a strong economy in the next 3 to 4 years are going to make a lot of money. I just can't say that for every company or the price of stocks today in comparison.
0: Well, I like even more cuz you mentioned Chip and Joanna Gaines.
4: I know, you really America's sweetheart. You. There
1: you I, go. I
0: listen, they are a force are in terms amazing. of retail, multimedia, yeah. That's a cult. channel, That's a multi-hyphenate. It is a cult.
1: <laughs> for sure. me. What a treat to have you here with us, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager for Smeed Capital Management. they got about $2.2 billion in assets out in Seattle. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.